the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And good morning. I'm Gary Randall. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's Friday, January the 29th, 2021, in the year of our Lord. Today on January 29, 1979, President Jimmy Carter formally welcomed the Chinese vice premier to the White House following the establishment of diplomatic relations. Jimmy Carter said, we have opened, we have opened China. I suspect that China was saying, we have opened the United States. Today in 1919, the ratification of the 18th Amendment to the Constitution, it uh, launched prohibition. It was certified by Acting Secretary of State Frank Polk. Today in 1936, the first inductees of Baseball's Hall of Fame, for you that like baseball, I'm one of you. Uh, The first class of Hall of Fame baseball players included Ty Cobb and Babe Ruth. Today, uh, 1963, poet Robert Frost died in Boston. He was 88 years old. I'm going to come back to him in a moment. Perhaps one of his most famous poems would be very, very appropriate in the days in which we live today. Robert Frost. Today, in 1975, a bomb exploded inside the U.S. State Department in Washington, D.C. It caused considerable damage. It only injured one person, fortunately. The radical group Weather Underground claimed responsibility. Bill Ayers was the co-founder of that, along with his wife, of the Weather Underground. Bill Ayers and his wife also launched Barack Obama's political career in Chicago. They were friends. He denies, Barack Obama denies being close friends with Bill Ayers, but the facts prove otherwise. They were very close, and they hosted him to raise money for him when he launched his career to run for the legislature in Illinois. But he said bombing government buildings was what the Weather Underground was all about. When asked in 2001 by the, uh, by the New York Times, what his thoughts were on what they had done back in the day when they were bombing these buildings in the 70s. He said, I wish we would have bombed more buildings. He and his wife went on to be professors. They taught kids the same things they believe. They became professors in different colleges, but both professors, advancing their far-left anti-American agenda. Today in 1984, President Ronald Reagan announced in a nationally broadcast message that he and Vice President George H.W. Bush would seek re-election in the fall. Today in 2002, in his first State of the Union address, President George W. Bush said terrorists were still threatening America, and he warned of a, quote, axis of evil consisting of North Korea, Iran, and Iraq. Five years ago today, the Obama administration finally admitted for the first time 
they admitted that Hillary Clinton's home server that had all of the United States security stuff on it was in the closet at she and Bill's house in New York. Closely guarded government secrets in the closet of the Clintons. Is that okay? No, it's actually illegal, but of course there were no consequences to the Clintons. Robert Frost is, I like poetry, and I think those of you who listen to this program over time know that. I don't talk about it. I certainly don't read a lot of it on this program because that's not what this is about. But when I noticed that today was the anniversary of the passing, the death of Robert Frost, I thought of perhaps one of the most famous poems. It's the most often quoted. It's a little bit misquoted, but not as far as the content or the essence of the poem. But one of the most famous poems that he probably wrote, and he many of them are, was the one that I'd like to share a bit of it with you this morning because it, it speaks to today, this day, in our own lives. It begins, Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both. And be one traveler, long I stood, and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other, as justice fair, and having perhaps the better claim, because it was grassy and wanted wear, though as for that the passing there had warned them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay, in leaves no step had trodden black. Oh, oh, I kept the fir- first for another day, yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, And I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. That poem is known by the road less traveled often, but actually Robert Frost didn't title it that. The title that he put on his poem when he wrote it, it was published in 1951, The Road Not Taken, as opposed to The Road Less Traveled or The Road Less Taken, as we've heard of. But that's the poem. As I remembered that poem today, thinking about the fact that this was that date, and I would be sharing that with you, on, as we do every morning on this program, things that happened on this date. And um, so many of you mentioned that when you correspond with us, notes and so on. Uh, you really enjoy that. And I, perhaps we all do because it jogs our memory and reminds us of things that have happened. Some of them are horrible things and some of them are great things, but it just reminds us of history and It's important to know history. It's important to know what happened. We don't want to live in the past, but I think we are much more effective, particularly as Christians, if we know the past. And that's why the Bible is so clear on giving us the history of how God has dealt with his people throughout all of time, from the very beginning, from the the Garden of Eden. He has given us a very, um, it's not comprehensive, but it is a very completed history. It's all we need to know about the history of the human race and about God's dealing with the human race. And in that, of course, the Bible is the inerrant, infallible word of God. And in that, we see the truth. And the truth himself became flesh and dwelt among us. And we know him as Jesus of Nazareth, 
the only begotten Son of God. So there is an importance to history for sure because it gives us a perspective of the cur- of the present and it speaks to the future. A number of our founders uh, were aware of that. Patrick Henry mentioned that several times in his speeches, how important it was that they, our founding fathers, understand the past so they can understand the future and address the future. But today we stand in our culture today. We do stand at a crossroads. There is no question about that. And I know that's a has become almost a cliche, but it is true. And there are choices to be made today, and the choices have never been more clear. We hear a lot about America being divided. It is steeply divided. Do I want it to be invited, divided personally? No, of course not. I want us to be unified. But to be real about the circumstances in which we live today, it's probably not going to be united anytime soon. It doesn't matter what the politicians in Washington, D.C. or elsewhere say. They may just be saying that because they think that the, you know, the public wants to hear it, or they may honestly believe that in their heart. I don't know. But many of them call for unity repeatedly. But unity means different things to different people. And usually to the left, unity means that the conservatives on the right, that we somehow compromise and adapt some of their policies, their beliefs, and their fluidity on what should be absolute like male, female, marriage, family, the sanctity of life, and so on. So if we're talking about compromise as the path to be unified in America, I'm not interested. I will not walk that path. And I think many of you will not as well. And that's, Frost wasn't speaking to the culture necessarily, but he was speaking to life. And that's a good reflection on where we are today. The road less traveled. It is easier to go with the flow. It's easier to go with the crowd today. And the people with the microphone and the loudspeaker and the pen and the authority, the power in America, are people on the left to the very, very far left. Because we had an election, and elections have consequences. Many of you have contacted me, I mean, quite a few, and I've heard others say just personally, I don't know if I even want to vote anymore if the if the election is rigged and if it's compromised, and I believe it is, and many of you do as well, I don't even know if I want to vote the next time. Well, we're not going to get into that today, but very soon I'm going to take a good part of a program here, and I'm going to talk about that very issue. Should we vote, or should we just sit it out as Christians? And I I have a very strong opinion, and I want to make the case, but I want to spend a little bit more time thinking about it, praying about it, But we're going to get to that right away. So if you've had that question just um, yourself or if you've contacted me and asked me, we will be addressing that, whether Christians should vote, given the fact that most of us know and believe that this last election was tampered with. It was, there is fraud, and it's, I believe, fairly significant fraud. And you have to ask yourself, are we going to go through that in the next election? And if so, why bother? Well, there, there's some very good reasons. So we'll get to that one of these days very soon. So just as they say in 
Radio. Stay tuned. We'll get to that. We will. The uh, U.S. Bishops Conference, they have uh, condemned President Biden, who is one of them. He's a so-called devout Catholic. He reinstated taxpayer-funded abortions around the world. Boy, they came out (laughs) upset, to say the least, with a statement yesterday. They called his act grievous, and they're calling on all Catholics to disagree with him. It was grievous that one of President Biden's first official acts actively promotes the destruction of human lives in developing nations. This Archbishop Joseph Newman, I mentioned him the other day, he's chairman of the Bishop's Committee of the Pro-Life Activities, and Bishop David Malley, he's chairman of the Committee on International Justice and Peace. They said this executive order is antithetical to reason, violates human dignity, and is incompatible with Catholic teaching. We and our brother bishops strongly oppose this action. They said on Thursday, that was yesterday, Biden signed an executive order allowing U.S. taxpayer funds to be sent to organizations that both promote and provide abortions in developing countries, revoking the life-saving Mexico City policy. They said, we urge the president to use his office for good, prioritizing the most vulnerable, including unborn children. And they go on, but it's very, very strong. Well, I agree with the Catholics on that, not on everything, but I certainly agree on that statement. The Bible says, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. Hebrews 10:23. There are many reasons for us to doubt our faith or to waver a little bit in our faith because a lot's going on in our world. A lot is changing. And a lot of the things that are happening are raising questions. There are, there's, there's something in men, the way that God created us. All of us want to worship. All of us want to, well, in the words of Robert Frost, walk the right road. The road, perhaps, even if it isn't the most traveled. The road not taken oftenly. We want to walk in a way that's pleasing to God. There's something inside of all of us that desires to worship. And those of us who know the Lord through our personal relationship with Jesus Christ, we have a desire to serve God and to please God in our daily walk, in our daily life. But sometimes when we turn away from God, that desire remains and we tend to, and history bears this out, we tend to replace God with other gods, small g kinds of gods. As far back as we can look in history, we see this in the Old Testament. The children of Israel, the people that God calls his own. Boy, every so long in their history, Moses would go to the mountain to seek God and meet God, and they were down there building a golden calf that they could worship. I mean, human nature is weird because we're fractured from sin, we're broken, and we repeat ourselves again and again and again. Well, in this current environment in which we live today, climate has become almost a religion. I'm not suggesting in what I'm about to say that Governor Inslee worships the climate. I am not saying that. 
But I am using him as an example that how quickly we can make kind of a transition in our religious views and our religious beliefs. I'm not saying he worships the climate. I am going to tell you that there are some who do. I'm not saying that he does. I don't know what he worships. I know what he says, but I don't know what he worships. But anyway, the great Washington State Governor Inslee, with a religious tone in his voice, declared Wednesday, day before yesterday, that President Biden's new climate crisis agenda gave him a hallelujah moment, a moment of hope. And he said it with this religious tone about it. He was on CNN speaking to one of the Comos that has a regular show on there. He noted that we have now crossed, these are the words of Governor Inslee, we have now crossed the, quote, desert of denial and deception, that our children will be unshackled, and we are apparently entering a green new promised land. Well, I I don't agree with that, but it's interesting that there's such a religious tone to this. But seriously, has climate change become kind of a new religion? I think it has. Inslee appeared on the Wednesday episode of Como's Primetime. He praised President Biden's climate actions. He addressed the claims that Biden is going to destroy a lot of jobs with his climate actions. He said, no, that's not true. Well, it, it is true because it's already begun. Workers on the Keystone XL pipeline have already been laid off, and they're already on television saying, I don't know what I'm going to do to make next month's house payment or rent payment. I have a family. I have a wife and two kids, one guy said, and this was unexpected to me. We thought the contracts were in place, and so did a lot of other people and countries as well, to finish this pipeline. But now, just like the stroke of the pen, they're out of a job. So, yeah, it is going to cost a lot of jobs, and that's only the beginning. But Como asked, even he knows, he asked Governor Inslee, he said, how do you finesse the aspect of the other party, meaning the Republicans on this? They've got a great angle. Como said, every time you do something that is green, you're taking green out of their pockets. Keystone Pipeline costing jobs, no more drilling, costing jobs. Jobs matter more to people than the environment when you look at the polls. How do you bridge that gap? Inslee then explained that fighting climate change doesn't hurt jobs. He said the opposite is true. Well, It is true that he said that, but that's not true. It's not true at all. That was tried under Obama, and Obama created all of these cockamamie organizations and companies to create, you know, plates for the roof to eliminate, you know, to power the homes and all that kind of thing. Almost all of them, if not all of them, went bankrupt after enriching the people who were running the company with government grants from Barack Obama. I mean, let's get real about this. It would be wonderful if the sun would shine and all of the lights would come on and and the toilet would flush and everything would happen as it's supposed to, but that isn't the way it works. Then Inslee delivered this sermon. I mean, it kind of sounded like a sermon. He said, listen, the other side wants to shackle people to the past era of declining jobs. We do not want to shackle our children to dead weight jobs that are not going to exist 30 years from now. We want to give our kids the jobs that are growing. And this is the number one job creation engine in clean history. He said, this is the answer. In conclusion, he said a lot more. But in conclusion, he said, 
I couldn't be more tickled. Look, this is a hallelujah moment from my view. We have crossed the desert of denial and deception about climate change, and we have a president who understands how to create jobs, and he's doing that bedtime every day. Well, we'll see how the new net jobs work out for this president, but it was the religious fervor of Governor Inslee that caught my attention. I know he ran for the president of the United States on a single issue, and it was climate change. He never got any traction on that, so America, essentially, even the Democrats in the primary, they were the only ones voting for he and his, his colleagues. He didn't even get traction among his own. So he's certainly not going to get traction among the others. So will Biden? I don't know. But climate change sounds an awfully lot like a religion today. First of all, it's a it's a banner for socialism. It is probably the greatest device, the way it's presented, climate change, cri- climate crisis it is now. It's probably the greatest um, tool for the distribution of wealth that's ever been foisted on humanity in the history of the world. It is that all-encompassing. It is a lie. It is deception. And it is not really, the people at the top are not really trying to save the glaciers and the polar bears. They're really looking to bring some kind of equity, as we now call it, to the whole world so everybody will have kind of the same amount of money in their pocket and... It will give incredible power to the people who pull this off. I mean, I know that's straight talk, and I I can only imagine that there are people listening to this program, because I've heard from you, that are profoundly disagreeing with me, but that's how I feel, and it's based on a lot of reading. No, I'm not a scientist, but I've read the works of a lot of scientists, and the ones that are opposing this whole movement are the ones that are not being reviewed for publication. They are censoring them, and they have been for the last number of years. But back in 2015, then-President Obama said, Today, today our planet faces new challenges, but none pose a greater threat to future generations than climate change. As a nation, we must act before it is too late. At the time, Lamar Smith, a congressman, he wrote quite an extensive article in the Wall Street Journal. I kept it. In it, he says, given that for the past decade and a half, global temperature increases have been negligible, and there's as many scientists that will tell you that as there are those that are being publicized who tell you otherwise, and that the worsening storm scenario has been widely debunked, Lamar Smith said. The pronouncement from the Obama administration, he said, sounds more like scare tactics than actual fact-based science. At the time, Representative Smith, he's a a Republican from Texas. He was chairman of the House Committee on Science, Space, and Technology. He said climate change has become more of a religion than a fact-based science. He noted that this Roger uh, Raja Dura Bachari, I, I think that's how you pronounce the name. I, I'm not sure. It's an Indian guy. The top scientist at the United Nations at the time was leaving the United Nations at the time this article was written by Lamar Smith. And he says that in um, Pajara's farewell letter, he said, quote, The protection of planet Earth, the survival of all species, and sustainability of our ecosystems is more than a mission. It is my religion. 
my dharma. He's not the only one that feels that way. The rest of the article attempted to redirect climate change activists back to science by Lamar Smith, and he is well-informed. He said the intellectual dishonesty of senior administration officials who are unwilling to admit when they're wrong is astounding. When asserting climate change, we should focus on good science, not politically correct science. Well, that's true. But one would say, come on, Gary, is everybody really going, making this a religion? No, not everybody is. But some are. And they have an influence. And we need to be aware. We need to be informed. Seminary students have held a worship service to plants. A worship service to plants. Asking forgiveness for their abuses and sins toward plants. Students at Union Theological Seminary prayed asking forgiveness to a display of plants set up in the chapel of of their seminary. They explained it like this. This is a quote from the seminary. Today in chapel we confessed to plants. Together we held our grief, joy, regret, hope, guilt, and sorrow in prayer, offering them to the beings who sustain us, but whose gift we too often fail to honor. The plants. Yeah, like plants, like a weed, like a tomato plant, or a. Uh, I'm looking at a picture of them right now, <laughs> on their knees, praying to these plants in a seminary. The seminary explained why such a ritual was held for people supposedly preparing for the ministry. The seminary said, we are, the, we are in the throes of a climate emergency, a crisis created by humanity's arrogance, our disregard for creation. Far too long we see the natural world only as resources to be extracted for our use, not divinely created in their own right, worthy of honor, thanks, and care. We need to unlearn the habits of sin and death, and part of that work must be building new bridges to the natural world. Well, that I mean, that's hints at pantheism and all kinds of weird Eastern religions. They said we must birth new theology. That means creating new spiritual and intellectual frameworks by which we understand and relate to the plants. Urging churches to turn from theologies that encourage humans to dominate and master the earth. Union says we must birth new theology, new liturgy, to heal and sow, replacing ones that reap and destroy. So I want to say just a word to all you farmers across middle America who are planting things and then harvesting them, boy, you're on the wrong side of this seminary. You're not supposed to plant and reap because that's destruction. You're supposed to worship those plants. Union Theological Seminary has a a weird past, and I don't have time to get into it today, but uh, it was affiliated with the Presbyterian Church years ago in the 1800s, and then they broke loose from that and became independent. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer actually came to that school to teach at one time and became so overwhelmed with their how far left they were in his time in 1939 that he left and went back and resisted Hitler and ultimately lost his life over his resistance. But this this seminary, unfortunately, is not typical, but it is there and there is that feeling in our culture. I've run out of time, but of course, God has given us stewardship and care of God's creation, absolutely. But we are not 
to worship the created. Thanks for being with me today. I'll see you Monday.